We are very glad that you are here this morning. Um, in fact, I've, I've been praying for a while about uh, certainly this entire sermon series, but especially uh, this sermon series, and, and maybe that will make a little bit of sense in a minute, but just that there would uh, not be distractions um, or discouragements that would keep folks from being here this morning. So for those of you who are here, very, very glad that you are here. Uh, we are in uh, the second week of a four-week sermon series that we're calling The Beloved Community. I'm borrowing language from Dr. Martin Luther King, who says it's not just that uh, there are divisions to be overcome. It's not just that there's racism that needs to be healed. It's not just that there's segregation that needs to be fixed. It's that there's something new that God is calling us into, right? So it's not just a leaving something behind, but there is a beloved community Dr. King uh, wrote about. He says that, that we are being called to live within. There's something that God has been doing and is doing that uh, at, 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 during this time that, that he was writing in the Civil Rights Movement. He said God is I- I- inviting us into this new beloved community. And so we're using this sort of as an, our, our umbrella over these few weeks to talk about some pretty challenging issues that we as a multi-ethnic, multiracial church have to face. So we have to look at some challenging things and we'll look at some of those today, but with in the, 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 the truth in mind that we are being invited and called into something new, something beautiful, something just. Amen? Amen. Okay. So last week what we did is we talked about two different cities. Do you remember the names? What was the first city? Babel. Help a preacher out. And the second city was? The New Jerusalem. And we said that we live within these two cities, but these two cities, they show us that God has a heart for cultural diversity right from the beginning. We see this beginning in Babel. We see this thread carrying all the way through to the New Jerusalem. So it's not just haphazard that there's cultural ethnic diversity in our world. This is intended by God and, in fact, will carry on to God's eternity. So we will live and worship within God's eternal kingdom, not outside of our cultural distinction, our ethnic distinction, but from within that as God redeems and reconciles us. Amen. We said last week that we don't live in Babel or the New Jerusalem. We live in Chicago. Chicago is the third most segregated city in the world, we learned in this latest census. And so we live at a time and in a place where God's vision for a reconciled people, for a beloved community, seems out of reach much of the time. So what is our hope? And we said that our hope is in the fact that God doesn't give up. That God doesn't change plans. That God's mission from Babel through the New Jerusalem remains the same, that of reconciling all things to God's self. And so we closed our time last week, if you remember, by talking about sharing meals with one another in Chicago between Babel and the New Jerusalem. We said this is the pattern of Jesus who sits down and eats with people he shouldn't eat with, who goes into homes of people he shouldn't have gone into, who has conversation and meals with those who ought to have been divided from him. That God takes on human flesh to sit and to eat with a sinful humanity. And as his last act before his arrest and crucifixion, Jesus does what? He eats. You remember. He breaks bread. He pours wine. He said, this is my body. This is my blood. I will be sacrificed for you. It is in my body, it is in the shedding of my blood that God is going to accomplish reconciliation between you and God and between you and each other. And so this is maybe what we hang on to as a little piece of hope as we live in Chicago between Babel and the New Jerusalem. 
that following the pattern of Jesus, we sit down and we're invited into one another's homes, we share meals, we listen to each other's stories, and something begins to transform us, the presence of Christ in our midst. Yes? Little steps, small steps. So last week, we, we kind of centered around this question of why is there so much diversity? And this morning, I want us to, to ask, well, why, why is there so much division? Last week, we, we, we skipped over the, the source of division. We acknowledged that there's division in our city and in our world. We acknowledged how the beauty and complexity of God's intended diversity can become warped into disparity and in division. But we didn't really talk about the why last week. We skipped over that. And it's there that we're going to camp out today. Why is it that the goodness of cultural diversity and ethnic diversity has become distorted and often destructive in our world? Why? As we answer this, we're going to to, to make four different moves, and Tyler can put these up here. What what we're going to do this morning, first, is we're going to look at the source of division in our world. The Bible's word for this is the powers. Then we're going to look at the powers' influence on on us in some very specific ways. We're going to look at the impact of the cross on the powers and then finally our response to the powers. Does that make sense, kind of how we're going to be moving through this? I wanted to try to structure this pretty clearly because we're going to be all over the place. I really don't want us to be distracted this morning if we can help it. So let me pray for us now as we open the scriptures and learn together. Jesus, we ask that you would protect our hearts and our minds over the next few minutes. We pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us exactly what it is that you need us to hear this morning. We pray not for new information, but for transformation of our lives. God, some of us acknowledge the anger that we have as these kinds of subjects are brought up. We lay it before you now. Some of us acknowledge the guilt that we have. We lay that before you now. Some of us acknowledge just the confusion that we have around these topics. We lay it before you now. God, we pray that you would step into wherever we are, whatever we're feeling, whatever our experience has been, whatever this sermon, whatever memories are going to be brought up, that you would step into our experience with us, God, and be present with us. We pray that, again, that you you would protect our hearts and our minds, that the enemy would have no voice here over the next few minutes. We stand in the shadow of your cross, claiming its power in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we begin with the source of humanity's divisions. And and the word that the Bible uses here is powers, or powers and authority. Or if you grew up reading the King James Version, come on, you can admit it. Who, who, Who read the King James Version? I love the King James. The principalities and the powers is what the King James Version calls it. The powers and the authorities, the the principalities and the powers. These, the Bible says, are the source of humanity's division in all of its form. Now, in order to unpack this a little bit, I want to look at one early church in the the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a first century church, and and it was experiencing something pretty new. They were experiencing a new multi-ethnic reality. The book of Acts tells us that the church in Ephesus was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And this was new for them. They hadn't experienced this before. This isn't something that people did. You didn't just, I mean, maybe you, you made a purchase from a Gentile or you walked by a Jew on the street, but you didn't worship together. You didn't belong to the same community together. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, this is the new reality that Paul describes. He says, for he himself, meaning Christ, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier 
the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside his, in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Paul says what you're experiencing, church in Ephesus, this is new for you. You have no precedent, no blueprint for this. You've not been here before. You're used to being enemies with the people you're now breaking bread with together and worshiping with. There was a wall of hostility, Paul says. And yet now you're worshiping together. You're caring for each other. You're belonging together to the same community. There's no precedent for this. Paul goes on in chapter 3, verse 6 to say it's not just that you you, you stumbled into this new reality. It's that you're expressing the very heart of the gospel. This mystery, Paul says, is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul says, in Jesus, humanity is reconciled to God. Individual people are reconciled to God. And and in Jesus, the mystery of the gospel, Paul says, is that people are reconciled to one another as well. The lines of hostility and division are obliterated at the cross. That cultures that were opposed are somehow brought together at the cross. This is what Paul calls the mystery of the gospel. This thing, Paul says, that's so different, so new, that it's hard to get our minds around. It's not just that we've been reconciled with God, which is radical enough. It's that those who were enemies are reconciled to one another. It's not just a new reality that you stumbled into. This is, Paul says, an expression of the heart of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Paul searches for metaphors throughout the book of Ephesians trying to explain this new reality. He says it's like you're one new man now. You're you're one body together. You're a, a God's household. You're a whole building. You're one holy temple. He's stretching for metaphors to try to put in front of people, this is what it's like. Again, there's no precedent. You've not experienced this before. So it's kind of like this, and it's kind of like this, and it's kind of, it's a mystery that God accomplished something on the cross that didn't just bridge the gap between us and humanity, but with one another as well. Those who were divided and opposed, Paul says, are brought together in Christ. This is... Uh, not just a historical fact. This is a present reality for many of us, isn't it? Uh, many of us grew up in environments where we were pretty much around people who were like us. Well, maybe the schools that we went to or the neighborhoods that we were in or the churches that we attended, right? I've heard more than one person in our church say, oh, this is really the first time I've had to think about what it means to worship. Because <laughs> when I was part of a white church, we just worshiped. We didn't know it was white worship. We just worshipped. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I've heard, uh, there's people in our church who said, this is really the first time I've ever spent extended, meaningful time in a black person's home, in a white person's home. This is really the first significant relationship I've had with somebody who's having the, the, the experience of being a second-generation immigrant in our country. This is new, uncharted territory. You see what I'm saying? Not just a historical fact. This is a present reality for us. I mean, how many of us grew up in like very multi-ethnic, multicultural, multiracial environments? We're like, oh, we totally get it. We totally know what we're doing here. 
Because if you do, you can preach next Sunday. <laughs> it was new for them and it's new for us. The divisions that were true for them are still true for us as well. And let me try to help us see the, 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 the significance of the divisions faced by the church in Ephesus. Um, there were ethnic divisions. There were class divisions. There were gender divisions. And we could spend time kind of unpacking all of these. But let me just, for the sake of an example, talk for a minute about the, 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 the differences in gender in this, in this city within the Roman Empire at this time. Uh, if you could choose in this day, you would have chosen to be born a man and not a woman. It was not uncommon for infant uh, 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 baby girls to be exposed to the elements hours after their birth. Infanticide is the word here. Right, Because families wanted strong males, strong boys. Uh, there's a scholar at Yale by the name of Sarah Rudin who's written a little bit about this. and uh, She says this about being born as a, as a woman. She says if, if, if the little girl had been placed outside, exposed to the elements, she may be picked up by a slave dealer and raised like an animal for the most profit, profitable purpose. He would sell her for labor as soon as she could do the simplest tasks. If she were healthy but not pretty enough to be a prostitute. Uh, even wealthy women in this day had a, a life of hardship. Their, their lives were defined against men and, and, and their husbands especially. Married off at an early age, expected to keep up the appearances of a hierarchical society, primarily valued as a means to bear male children and cast off at any moment by a fickle husband. There are stories in, in, in ancient literatures of, of again, wealthy families uh, um, where, where a wife had, had, had borne a number of children and, and the husband then giving his wife to a friend whose wife hadn't borne him any children. This was the lot of life for many, many people in the city of Ephesus. Uh, Professor Rudin talks about what, it was, what, it, what women were perceived to be like, how they thought, how they felt how men perceived them. She says this, I think we have the quote up here, women were by nature wild, lustful, and depraved. Their families had to keep them under guard and make all of their major choices for them. Husbands had to keep them pregnant, and the whole society had to stifle their individuality and self-expression. Because any thought or energy at their own disposal was likely to create lewd adventures leading to chaos and to violence. How does Paul's language land in a culture like this? You were divided. You are now brought into a new family. Now, now let me push this a little bit further and listen to what Paul says to the church in Galatia. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, that's maybe kind of just normal language for us, but do you understand how radical this would have sounded in this day? how subversive this language would have been in this day. Paul is addressing ethnic divisions, class divisions, and gender divisions as well. Paul is clearly not saying that your ethnicity does not matter, that class divisions should be overlooked, or that gender distinctions don't don't carry any weight. Clearly, we know from last week that God cares about these things. Paul's not saying that we overlook these, but he's saying very clearly that there's no longer any room for division or disparity. 
And so Paul writes throughout the New Testament that men are called to love their wives as those made in the very image of God. You understand how significant that would have been? Women no longer are to define themselves against their husbands or their ability to bear children. Paul says that a woman is valuable simply because she is loved by God, period. And and, and Paul pushes this so far in a culture where to be single meant that you had either been cast off or you were a prostitute. Paul says a woman can be single. A woman can be called to be single. A woman's vocation can involve singleness. Paul places before the the women of his day this liberty, this freedom, this choice to be what God has called them to be. Do 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 you see how significant this was? I mean, this was... This was crazy stuff. This made the Christians so outside of the norm in their day. This provided voice and liberty for women that was unheard of in the city of Ephesus. The divisions that Paul is addressing when he writes to the Ephesians church are not surface. They're not easy things. These are deep. These are entrenched. Paul is writing about the unity and the reconciliation of the cross to a people who know deep, deep divisions. He is placing before them an entirely new way of thinking and of living. And again, I I don't think this is just for then. I think this is now as well. We're going to talk more about race in a minute, but, but consider for a moment the, the types of gender divisions and stereotypes that exist in our culture today. So, so I go, I go to, to this gym uh, on 47th Street, and, and there's a line of treadmills, and, and some of you go there too. I see you there sometimes. And, and, and there's TVs in front of the treadmills. And your options when you're on the treadmill watching TV are to watch the music video channel, or ESPN. Or there's usually like news or something on, right? So, so I, I, I've, I've, I've watched this as I'm on the treadmill. And if, if, if you would just make your assumptions about what gender is based on these TVs, you would draw some interesting conclusions, I think. Uh, the, 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 the music video chant, which I didn't even know that like, there still were music videos. But they're still making them. Who knew? I, you know, I didn't know this. They're still making music videos. Um, the music video channel is, uh, you, you, would, you would pretty quickly, I think, come to conclude that women are defined primarily by their sexuality and their vulnerability. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Right? So, 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 so to be a woman in our culture has to do with being a very sexualized person who is defined by their ability or inability to attract a man based on their sexuality. Or to, in some cases in these videos, (laughs) enact vengeance (laughs) on men based on their sexuality as well. Men, on the other hand, as I watch ESPN and the commercials on ESPN, are defined by their athletic prowess, which interestingly enough kind of blurs into violence many times. And not just on the field or on the court, but off, right? 
And then, if you stay tuned and actually watch the commercials, these are uh, athletically gifted, sometimes violent, and incredibly stupid people. So say the commercials, especially beer commercials. This is what it means to be a man or a woman in our culture. There are these false images, these false versions of ourselves that are fed on a regular basis. Now, the gender divisions are different in our day than they were in Ephesus, but I'd like to claim that they still exist, that the roots of division are still deep in our day as well. So that when we talk to one another, even across gender, we are talking through all kinds of stereotypes, all kinds of cultural static that's in front of us. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The roots of division are deep. And Paul understands that this isn't an easy matter. And I wonder if it's, if it's for this reason that he waits till the very end of the book in chapter 6 before he articulates the source of the, these divisions. I think he first, he, he spent the first five chapters saying, this is what God has done for you. This is the new reality you've been called to. This is what Jesus accomplished on the cross, uniting us to God and to one another. I think he waits till the very end because he understands just how deeply rooted these divisions are. What does he say in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12? I want you to hang on to these verses. These are important ones for us today. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And here it is that Paul finally lands and he says, this is, this is where this comes from. Divisions and distortions and injustices, these are not random things that happen. Paul says that that these are spiritually rooted realities. The the, the divisions of of their day and of our day were spiritual in nature. So what are these powers and authorities? Can I just tell you, I really don't want to preach about this. Just so you know. Like anybody who likes preaching about spiritually oppressive things, that's weird to me. Just saying. I really, I don't want, this is not like fun stuff for me to preach about. I'm not sure how we get around it, though. Our struggle, Paul says, is not against what we can see, but against the spiritual forces of evil. So what are these powers and authorities? Um, I I want to try to be brief here, because there's frankly not a whole lot that we can say. Uh, These are spiritual forces, the Bible tells us, often demonic in nature bent on the destruction of humanity, opposition to God. Let me say three very brief things about these that I think we can see, especially from the New Testament. First, and we need to understand this, that the spiritual forces that Paul is talking about, the principalities and the powers, were actually created by God for good. This is what he says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16. For in him, in Christ Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. All things, all things, all things. 
When we think about the powers and the authorities, I think one way for us to helpfully think about this is to imagine a a tapestry. See, this is where I need both my hands right now. A tapestry that's woven together. And this tapestry is woven together with threads that are both visible and invisible. Things we can see and things we cannot see. This will become a little bit more clear in just a minute. How do we know that that these were all created for good? How can we say that these things were all originally created for good? First, God created everything. Yes? Is there anything that exists that God did not create? No. As Christian people, we say that God, in the beginning, created everything. So that means that even those forces that are now opposed to God were originally created by God for good purposes. But here's the second thing, and this is what we can often miss. The principalities and the powers are not just spiritual forces, but they are systems that exist in our world today. And that will be more clear in a minute, but, but, but hang with me here for a second. When God creates humanity, we're created in the image of God. And as we saw last week, humanity is sent throughout the earth to fill the earth, to, 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 to be cultural agents within the earth, right? To organize, to, to, to enact structures. These are good things. Things like government, things like organization, family structures. These are good things. These are reflections of who God is. God is a creator God, an organizing God. Scientists will, will, will help us see this as we uncover layers of creation to see how ordered and the world that God created is. So all is created by God for good because God created everything and because humans, as we create, we are creating out of our image-bearingness of God. We're created in God's image, and so we are people who create structure and order. Are you with me? Number two. Number two. First thing we say is that, that all the principalities and the powers were originally created by God for good. Second thing, some of the angels rebelled and sinned and now oppose God and humanity. And humanity itself rebelled, and our wills now oppose God. So now again, there's not a whole lot we can say here. The scriptures aren't incredibly clear with all the details here, but what we can see woven throughout the scriptures is that both uh, uh, the angels and humanity at some point turn our wills against God. Not all of the angels, but some of the angels oppose God and are now actively opposing God. Humanity as well, this is the story in Genesis, created in the image of God, given free will, chooses to rebel against God. So all is created for good, but in both the spiritual realm and in in, in our own humanity, there is now opposition to God. You tracking with me? So humanity now, you and I, are caught up in a spiritual war that involves personal spiritual attack. You and I are subject to spiritual attack that we cannot always see, we cannot always discern. There is a spiritual war going on, Paul says, that we are caught up in. That's one part. The second part, though, is that the systems and the structures created by humanity are subject to corruption, to oppression, into great evil. So when we talk about this tapestry of the principalities and powers, we include both the unseen and the seen. The personal spiritual attacks of this war and the very structures that we are a part of. Things like government, even like family structures, are now subject, the Bible says, to decay, to corruption, to oppression, and even to great evil. 
So if we consider for a second the, the church in Ephesus, things like gender inequality, female infanticide, forced prostitution, these were, this, is, this may sound offensive, these were natural results of a worldview and of, of governments that were deeply corrupted by spiritual forces of evil. You understand that, 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 that there wasn't one person or three people or seven people or 20 people in that city saying this is how things are going to be. This was the air people breathed. Women were viewed this way. This is how women are. This is the reality. So, 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 are you tracking with me? This is the air that was breathed. This is the water that was being drunk. This is how things were. These were the systems that were in place, the principalities and the powers. And again, it's not any different in our day, is it? We see very similar kinds of things. Uh, those of us who, who, who have eyes to see or take a moment to critique a little bit of the world that we live within, right? We begin to see that some of the structures that are around us, that the principalities and powers are not just spiritual in nature, what we cannot see, but actually part and parcel of the world that we inhabit. The problem, of course, is, is that if you question too many beer ads... Uh, or if, if you, you, you wonder out loud too many times why there aren't any you know, strong Asian-American characters on television, you stop getting invited to parties, right? <laughs> you're, you're one of those people now. So spiritual forces, they are created, the, the, the powers are created by God originally for good, good but both... In the heavenly realms and in our own humanity, there has been rebellion and opposition to God's will. And then the last thing I want to say is that because of these things, you and I are in a spiritual struggle. And our enemies are the, as Paul says, spiritual forces of evil, whose attack is both personal and systemic. You and I are in a spiritual struggle and our enemies are the spiritual forces of evil whose attack is both personal and systemic. Are you getting depressed yet? After Paul uh, repeatedly shows the new reality of the cross that in Jesus God is accomplishing amazing things, that there is reconciliation available, that people are experiencing new reconciled community for the first time, he then lays in front of him the very real threat to this unity, the source of division, he says, it's spiritual in nature. It's the powers and the authorities. So here's the second move that I want to make in the sermon now. I want to talk about the power's influence on us. Now we've seen how the powers influenced the church in Ephesus and what they had to struggle against. But I want to talk specifically about how the, the principalities and the powers have affected you and have affected me as people who live in a specific place at a specific time. I want to talk about race for a few minutes. Uh, did you know that uh, race as an idea, as a concept, did not exist for most of human history? It really wasn't until the 1700s that people started to talk about race as something that existed. And so what happens is that uh, the European powers, they begin to expand and explore and colonialize, and they, they, they all of a sudden they meet people who don't look like me. I thought everybody was white. Now, now there's some different ethnicities and you know, some language, but I thought everybody looked like me. 
Now, at the same time that this colonial movement is happening and, and European powers are meeting people who don't look like them, there's developments in philosophy and science at the exact same time. And, and think for a moment, what would have happened if rather than try to racialize this new experience, what if these, these, these explorers, they said, wow, look at this diversity. I wonder what we have to learn from these people who are different than us. I wonder what they have to say to us. Did that happen? It did happen. Oh. Okay, that's good. That's good. That's very good. Thank you. Here, here, watch what happens in developments of philosophy and science at the, at the exact same time as this expansion is happening. You've heard of the Enlightenment, I imagine, many of you. So there's Enlightenment thinkers that are beginning to articulate a, a racialized understanding of how the world works. They're promoting ide- ideologies of racial inequality. People like Immanuel Kant, Voltaire, David Hume, and even Thomas Jefferson in the United States are beginning to put language and idea and philosophy around this discovery of a world full of diversity that we didn't know. We Europeans didn't know existed before. Let, let, let me just... Uh, sit for a minute here with uh, Immanuel Kant, who was a German philosopher in the 1700s. As he's re- receiving reports of the exploration going on, he says, well, there must be four races in the world. There's the white race, the Negro race, the Hun race, and the Hindu race. Uh, he says, but, but, but really, every race falls along a continuum. Uh, uh, Negroes on one side, he says, and the whites on the other side. These, he says, are the base races. In a lecture in 1775, he's explaining which of these four races comes most close uh, to God's original intention. In other words, who most lines up with Adam and Eve? I think we have this quote we can put up on the screen here. He writes, if we ask which of the present races, the first human stock, Adam and Eve he's talking about, might well have had the greatest similarity, we will presumably although without any prejudice because of the presumptuously greater perfection of its color when compared with that of the others. I'm glad you're laughing. Pronounce favor on the whites. This is very deep philosophy that's being done right here. He says, basically, we can clearly tell by the skin color of white people that they are the ones most closely aligned to Adam and Eve. principalities and the powers. In later writings, Kant would say that that the white race had not yet been perfected, but it was reaching perfection, while all other races would be, quote-unquote, stamped out. So at the same time as this exploration and as as this uh, philosophy is being developed, uh, a scientist get in the game as well. There's a Swiss botanist by the name of Carolus Linnaeus. He's the one who introduces species categorization for the first time. So he's the guy in 1759 who labels you and I as homo sapiens for the first time, the Swiss botanist. He, he, he decides that there should be some subspecies as well, though, to the human race. And so there's the homo americanus, there's the homo africanus, There's the Homo Europaeus, there's the Homo Asiaticus, there's the Homo Monstrosus, which was exotic man, and the Homo Ferris, which was wild man. I mean, this this is crazy, right? Like, this is insane, right? 
No, this was accepted as truth. This is how the world worked. So this science leads to a, a conviction, a scientific conviction, that in fact all humans are not descended from the same species. So now we're not just talking about difference in ethnicity or even this kind of new category of race. Now we're talking about different species. So scientists begin to develop ideas that, well, clearly white people, they must have descended from Adam and Eve, but everybody else on this continuum, hmm, maybe different descendants, different species. And I, and, I, and I need to just be totally honest with you that there are things that as I studied and as I read about, especially this moment in history, I just don't have the guts to put in front of you this morning. There are ways uh, that, that these scientists articulated different species and questioning who is human and who is not that I just don't, I can't, I don't have the stomach for. And maybe if I were more comfortable in my own white male skin this morning, I would be able to do that for you. Maybe that would benefit us this morning. But I, I don't have it in me. Okay? Some of you know what I'm talking about. If you really want to know, you can find out pretty quickly the ugly and destructive ways that people were talking about non-white people. Understand that all of this is happening not just a, a few hundred years, not just a few decades, but right around the same years that our country is founded. So, so, so many of our, our founding fathers are drinking deeply from these wells. This is the air that is being breathed. These are the people who are being read, the scientists that are being quoted. And so is it all that surprising? Is it all that surprising that people who believed that they were being perfected and people who believed or, or doubted the full humanity of everybody else would then act and behave the ways that they did? The Native American tribes would be decimated by disease and war and forced migration. That the transatlantic slave trade would be such an important part of our country's history with 11 million Africans being brought from the west coast of Africa. One to two million dying in route. In the 1850s, uh, the California gold rush starts and, and there's a need for new immigrants. And the word goes out to China and, um, and Chinese immigrants begin coming to the west coast of our country to do menial labor. I think you have a, a picture of uh, Tyler and and as uh, the popu the Chinese population increases, especially on the West Coast, people very quickly become uncomfortable with this. And and and, and much like many uh, uh, Hispanic immigrants today, these Chinese immigrants were blamed for everything, for low wages, for lack of jobs. So petitions went around, and eventually in 1882, a law was passed, the Chinese Exclusion Act. It stopped all immigration from China, with very few exceptions. And, and most maybe devastating is that those who had already immigrated were not allowed to become citizens. They were held as permanent aliens in our country. Most of us know that as a category, race does not exist. The, the idea of biological differences, the, the way that race was articulated, is, is just completely false. Scientists have shown that uh, my, my DNA is almost identical to yours, with maybe 1% difference in our genetics. 
There is no, no genetic difference between one quote-unquote race or another. In other words, there's no, scientists are telling us, there's absolutely no basis, nor justification on a biological level for this idea, this concept of race. Do you understand what I'm saying? And, and this has been true all the way from the beginning because these people doing this philosophy and this science, they would say, well, there's two races, there's three races, there's five races, there's 60 different races. They're grasping after something that doesn't exist. And yet, and yet the idea of race, race as a social construct in our country and in our world now, remains deeply true. And divisions remain very strong. Again, this is the air that we breathe. This is the water that we drink. So there's a new study that came out recently that that shows that despite what you and I say about ourselves and our ability to be colorblind with one another, we actually carry a deep unconscious bias towards those who look like us. The way they tested this was, who would I trust the most amount of money to? And regardless of what I said, oh, I trust everybody regardless of what they look like, I will trust a white person with more money than I would trust a non-white person study in Boston and Chicago a few years back, many of you have heard of this, found that people with quote-unquote white-sounding names were far more likely to be called back about a job than somebody with a quote-unquote black-sounding name. You know that minority children are much less likely to be insured than white children are. Uh, There was a, a Harvard study that was posted on the Freakonomics blog a couple weeks ago, and let me just quote it here because it's a little confusing. I think it's important. It says, um, the study uh, found that for jail sentences handed down to minority defendants who were convicted of killing white victims, those sentences were uh, 9% more likely to be reversed than in cases involving a minority defendant killing a minority victim. In other words... If a minority kills, excuse me, if a a white person kills a minority, no, 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 no. If a minority person kills a white person, the sentence is going to be much more harsh than if a minority person kills a minority person. So much so that higher courts are going to be 9% more likely to overturn the previous verdict. You see? Bottom line is, is that it's worse to kill a white person than a minority person in our country today. Um... I think it's just important for us to acknowledge that this, this is the water we swim in. So I grew up uh, uh, in, in South America. I've, I've mentioned this before. I grew up in Venezuela and in Ecuador. And, uh, and my family moved to Southern California when I was in ninth grade in 1991, three months after uh, Rodney King was beat by the LAPD and video was broadcast really around the world. And so for me, this, was, this is what it meant to be in America. Uh, we lived a couple hours from L.A., and so uh, the next year in March when um, all four of the police officers were acquitted, L.A. just exploded. Fifty-three people died. Thousands were injured. Over 7,000 fires were set in L.A. I remember uh, even in our town, which was a couple hours away, people boarding up windows, grocery stores boarding up their windows. And, and, and this, is, this is what it meant to be in America. This is what was true about the country that I was, in a way, discovering for the first time. 
In our neighborhood, the, 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 the tension, the racial tension uh, over those years wasn't so much between white and black people, it was white and Hispanic people, because we lived near orange groves, so there was a need for laborers to work in the orange groves, and it's hard work, very hot, and there was uh, not much pay for this work. And, and I remember be- beginning to understand that in this, in this environment, it was okay to depend on people and yet still malign them. To depend on people and yet still pay them very little. Depend on people and yet still have incredibly destructive language to refer to them. And this is how it works. 10th or 11th grade year, one of my friends, a white guy, started dating an African-American woman uh, in our high school. And I I asked him, I said, you guys are getting along? We all like her? Are Are you guys dating? And he said, oh, no. I could never bring home a black woman to my parents. And this is what it means to be in America. In my freshman year in, in, in college in North Carolina, uh, I distinctly remember the afternoon when the OJ verdict was reached. And I was interested because, again, we had lived in Southern California. And I remember on one end of the hall, a bunch of African-American guys really excited. And on the other end of the hall, a bunch of white guys not so excited. And I, and, I, and I say this uh, to say that this is the air that I breathed. Th- this, for me, is what it meant to be an American. And, and as much as I would love to say somehow I'm separate from that, somehow that didn't affect me, somehow I, I was able to maintain some sort of bubble around myself, that would be a lie. I I say these things, I tell you these things to say that it's not just this kind of racialized history that our country has, it's that it is the history our country continues to have, the air that we continue to breathe. Are you with me? So I say this almost as a confessional to you this morning that I am one who remains prejudiced. I remain broken. I remain prone to stereotypes, you see? I remain prone to trust people who look like me or sound like me. This is the air that I breathe. This is my confession to you. As we see the divisions and the disparities that affect us and that you and I perpetuate, we we have a decision, I think. And it's a decision, I think, that our church faces if we are going to live into the vision that God has given us We can live with the way things are. We can acknowledge, on the other hand, the powers and authorities behind divisions and realize that we are actually in a spiritual battle. We can tolerate the way things are, put up with the way things are, be overwhelmed by the way things are, or we can acknowledge that, in fact, the way things are are deeply impacted by a spiritual battle that we are in. So we can ignore the fact that in America where you live determines the quality of your education, or we can acknowledge the spiritual battle that is taking place for the lives of our young people. We can ignore the ways that race affects who goes to jail and how long they'll stay incarcerated, or we can acknowledge the presence of evil in what one author calls the new Jim Crow of our country. We can ignore the divisive rhetoric aimed at new immigrants in our country. We can pretend it doesn't exist. Or we can call out, we can acknowledge how fears and prejudices are being exploited by what Paul says are the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm.
We have a choice. We have a decision. We can tolerate the way things are. We can wish that they were different, but just kind of hunkered down. Or we can begin to acknowledge that we are in a war. What gives us the hope to do more than just tolerate the way things are? What gives us the courage to fight, not just for my own success, my own achievement, but for the good of others, for people who don't look like me or sound like me or whose ethnicity or history and culture is different than my own? What makes us think that the unity and reconciliation that Paul wrote about is actually possible today in our city and in our church? This brings me to my third movement, the impact of the cross on the powers. I hope there's some good news coming for you, church. You see, at the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the powers and the authorities, Paul says, were disarmed. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Hang on to these words, church. Hang on to these words. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Romans chapter 8. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Why we have hope. This is why we have courage. The powers and authorities, Paul says, were humiliated at the cross, were disarmed at the cross. Their power was actually taken away. And I'm praying for your minds to be sharp right now because this is a truth, this is a deep biblical truth that we need to be able to hang on to. One, One scholar says that the powers, they're fighting like hell still, but they have no actual power. Their tactics in our day are confusion and deception. In the time between Babylon and, or Babel and the New Jerusalem, the powers and authorities, they seek to wreak havoc by turning peoples and cultures against each other. Consider just for a moment the empty power of racial inequality. There is no real power there. It's an empty power. This is a power built around a false ideology, built on fear, built on pride, junk science, and warped philosophy. There is no power there. The power exists because we give it the power. With our fear, with our pride, with our insecurities, with our increased prejudice, we give it power, but it has no power in and of itself. You see? Racial inequality, when held up to the cross, has no power. It's been exposed as empty, as bankrupt, as powerless. It continues to have power because we've given it power. The cross of Jesus, if we would allow it to do so, would make a public spectacle of ideologies of racial inequality. Humiliate it. Paul says that not only were the, were the powers humiliated and disarmed at the cross, there will come a day when even their ability to deceive will be taken from them. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Then, Paul says, the end will come when Jesus hands over the kingdom to God the Father after Jesus has destroyed all dominion, all authority, and all power. We live in between Babel and the New Jerusalem. We look ahead to the day when the powers are destroyed for all time. 
They fight like hell now, even though they have no real power. They deceive, they disorient, they confuse. But they have no power in and of themselves. Are you, do you see? So Christ has defeated the spiritual powers and authorities, and one day he will destroy them completely. Until then, they actively seek to divide and destroy us. This is the spiritual war that we are in, church. The principalities and the powers through their personal attacks, through the the systems and structures of our world, seek to destroy even though they have no real power in and of themselves. Here's the last move. How do we respond to the powers? Let me be blunt. We enter the fight. We enter the fight. We enter the fight. We are not passive. We are not on the sidelines. We don't hunker down and pray for Jesus to come rescue us. We enter the fight. Why? Because the cross is empty. We don't accept the divisions and the disparity of our world as normal. We don't pretend to live in a colorblind society. Watch what Paul does here in the middle of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3. The last scripture I want to share with you this morning. God's intent was that now, through the, through the, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you understand the significance of that? Powers have been defeated at the cross. The powers will be destroyed when Jesus comes back and hands the keys to the throne over to the Father for all time. In the meantime, Paul says, it is the church that proclaims and demonstrates to the powers that Jesus alone is Lord. You see? Do you see? Watch this. According to Paul, the powers and the authorities are confronted through us. It is our unity. It is our reconciled relationships. It is our opposition to injustice in our world. It is our beloved community that declares to the principalities and powers, Jesus alone is Lord. There is but one with real power, we declare, and his name is Jesus. There is but one with the power to reconcile all things, and his name is Jesus. There is but one with healing in his wings for the nations, and his name is Jesus. There is but one who holds the authority over all things, things in heaven and things on earth, and his name is Jesus. There is but one who can bring together hostile people, divided people into a new family, and his name is Jesus. There is but one who can cure the disease of our land of racism, and his name is Jesus. Worship team, come on, come on, come on up. Every time that you and I elevate the resurrected Christ, the powers and the authorities are pushed back. Every time you and I confess our sin to each other, the powers are pushed back. 
Whenever we acknowledge that our thinking and that our actions have been uh, affected by racial inequality, when we acknowledge this, the powers are pushed back. Every time we listen to the painful chapters of one another's stories, someone who differs from us in their race, their ethnicity, the powers are pushed back. Every time we repent of our intentional or our intentional superiority, the powers are pushed back. Every time we refuse to believe the simplistic and destructive categories for people so prevalent in our country, the powers are pushed back. Every time we call out a divisive ideology, whether it's in a joke among friends or in the lecture hall of the university, the powers are pushed back. In every one of these and a thousand other actions, church, you and I, we declare to the powers and the authorities that there is only one who truly has power. There is only one who truly has authority over all things, and his name is Jesus. Is that good news, church? We wade into some deep waters today. And some of you are going to have to keep wading into the water. Some of you have been wading in these waters a long time. The Holy Spirit is with you and Jesus walks beside you. Take hope. Some of you, though, some of you are maybe more like me where you've had your toe in the water. And acknowledging the realities of the principalities and powers of our world, not just in in, in individual attacks, but in the systems that have affected us and that we participate in. Those are some deep waters. I want you to have courage to to keep wading in. To not turn back. To not be afraid. To continue to confess sin as it arises. To continue to confess our complicities in corrupt systems. To continue to acknowledge to one another that our hope lies alone at the empty cross. There's good news for us this morning, not because we're smart enough to fix this. Not because we're a a good multi-ethnic church and we talk about hard things, so pat us on the back. Isn't that great? No. There's hope for you and I this morning because the cross of Jesus is empty and because the mystery of the gospel, Paul says, is that God is going to accomplish God's purposes, reconciling us to God and us to each other. This is a done deal, church. The powers and authorities, they fight like hell, and you know that in your own life. You've experienced that in your own life. But remember this morning, they have no power. They're deceivers. They want to confuse, and that's about all they can do. There is but one who holds all things in his hands, who was there when creation was formed, who one day will turn over the keys to the kingdom to God the Father and say, it is finished once and for all. Every force of opposition has been stopped and destroyed. There's hope for us this morning. There's hope for me this morning. There's hope for you. There's hope for us together as a new community this morning. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, we need you to lead us. We need you to be powerful for us. We need you to to tear down ideologies that are destructive. We need you to heal minds that have been infected and broken. We need you to bring forth repentance, confession from our hearts. We need you to open up our eyes to the realities of the spiritual battle that that we find ourselves in, that there is more than meets the eyes around us. 
We need you to do, Lord, what only you can do. God, I pray, especially now for those who are maybe feeling a little beat up by this sermon, who are feeling guilty or feeling weighed down or feeling anger bubbling up. Lord Jesus, be strong and be present, I pray. I pray for those of us in the room who would really quickly want to move on to the next thing, would want to be distracted by something else. Lord Jesus, be strong and consistent in our lives. I pray for our church, Lord God. I pray that you would protect us from the evil one. I pray that you would protect us from the principalities and the powers, that there would be no room for deception in our church, in our community. That there would be no room for confusion in our community. That there would be no room for division in our community. God, that we would be a people who would be able to call it out immediately. Would you give us discernment and wisdom, Lord, to see when we are missing, when we are straying, when we are leaning too far in one direction and center ourselves back on you. And without being presumptuous, Lord, would you see fit to use our church to demonstrate to the powers and the authorities that you alone are Lord. Would you see fit to use this young, this new, this still figuring it out church in all of our weakness, in all of our inadequacy, in all of our foolishness, but in our devotion to you to show, to demonstrate, to instruct, to inform the powers and the authorities that you alone are God, that you alone are powerful, and that you are our protector pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All the power belongs to you. All the power belongs to you, oh God. One more time. Oh, we say, Lord, all the power belongs to you. All the power belongs to you, oh God. give you a benediction here in just a minute. Happy Mother's Day again, women of our church. Thank you for following God's call in your life. Stop by uh, Kalia's desk on the way out, learn more about her ministry, uh, and please sign up for our spring cleaning for our Kids City classroom. Um, I want you to hear these words as we close, especially considering the spiritual battle that we find ourselves in. Romans chapter 8, verse 37. Know in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Uh, I want to invite those of you who want to come forward to be prayed for today after this sermon. Just come down. Our worship team will maybe just kind of sing through this song a little bit more quietly. The rest of you, if you want to be dismissed, hang out in the back for a little bit. There's no rush. But especially if the sermon this morning, if it sits heavy, maybe there's some areas of stronghold in your life. There's some areas that you need to be prayed over that God would be liberating your heart and your mind for the purposes he has for you. Christ Jesus. 
want to invite you to come forward after the service. I'll be here. Some of our prayer team folks can pray for you. And now, Lord Jesus, we pray that you send us out, not under our own strength, not under our own ideas of power, but under your power. A power that was made manifest when the God of the universe made himself human and gave up all power for our behalf. A power that sacrificed itself so that we may know life. A power that indwells us with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. A power that through the Holy Spirit has equipped us and given us everything we need for this life. Send us out under that power, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All the power belongs to you. All the glory belongs to you, oh God. Oh Lord, all the glory belongs to you.